This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Font As we may have mentioned once or twice, we here at the Word of the Week are fans of fantasy role-playing games like Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder. In fact, we have spent the majority of our lives gaming under the illustrious title of Dungeon Master and the slightly less illustrious and more generic title of Game Master. If we somehow don't know what that means, well, we're curious how the heck you found this podcast and what you thought the GM and GM Word of the Week actually stood for. Drop us a line. Let us know. Anyway, if you somehow don't know what a Dungeon Master or Game Master is, the DM, or GM, is the person who creates the quests the heroes will undertake during a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And they are also the person who referees said games. It's complicated. The point is, though, that as Game Masters, we spend a lot of time designing and preparing fantasy adventure games for our hapless players to attempt. That job involves spending a lot of time designing interesting fantasy locations for adventurers to explore, and writing down lots of little bits of description to bring those locations to life. As such, we spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how, say, a medieval fantasy temple might be furnished, and what kind of things might be found there, and writing extensive notes about them. Things like braziers, and censers, and other ceremonial accoutrements that might be scattered around such a place. Which is why, this week, the word we're discussing is font. See, when it comes to describing a location like an ancient temple for a group of adventurers to plunder and pillage, a font is a very important consideration. During the game, you need to present information quickly and clearly to the players, and that means the details have to be quite readable. You need to be able to find information at a glance, and you can't be flipping pages too much. So the more information you can fit on one page, the better off you are. Choosing a font is a matter of balancing readability and size to balance clarity with informational depth. Because you can't have a temple without a font. Where else would they keep the holy water? Now, you probably know what homonyms are because you live in a world in which 86% of the population is literate. And in most of the countries this podcast is heard in, 99% of the population is literate. But that hasn't always been the case, which you probably also know. What you may not know is that while there have been several explosions in the literacy rate throughout the course of history, none of those famous explosions were as explosive as you might think. In fact, as late as 1820, only 12% of the population of the world could read and write. And before that, even in the best educated countries in the world, the literacy rate was generally less than 50% prior to 1800. Yeah, we know you've heard all about how Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in like 1400 or something, and how suddenly Europe became super literate. The problem is, that's all wrong. Gutenberg didn't invent the printing press, and Europe didn't become super literate. 
Literacy started to increase, sure, but it didn't really take off until the 1820s, and the printing press wasn't even a European invention. But we'll come back to that in a minute, because font, and font, and homonyms. Okay, so you know, especially because we've talked about it before, that homonyms are words that are both homophones and homographs. At least, that's the highly nitpicky definition. Some folks say homonyms are words that are either homophones or homographs, but we like to be nitpicky. Homographs are words that are written the same. That is, they are spelled the same, like lead, the metal, and lead to get people to follow. And homophones are words that are pronounced the same. They sound the same, even if they are written differently, like lead, the metal, and lead to have gotten people to follow. What you may not know is that when it comes to homonyms, nitpicky homonyms, which are words that have different meanings, but are spelled and pronounced the same way, as in font and font, when it comes to homonyms, there's always a question as to whether they are polysemous homonyms or whether they are true homonyms. Have we mentioned that we love wordplay? Okay, so polysemous homonyms are words that sound the same and are spelled the same because they are technically the same word. The different meanings are related somehow, and the words have the same origin. For example, mouth, the hole in your face out of which words come, and mouth, the end of a river, are polysemous homonyms. Or wood, a forest, and wood, a bit of a tree corpse. And frankly, those are the more interesting homonyms, the ones where there are related meanings and a fun story to tell about how one word came to mean different things. But true homonyms are words that accidentally sound the same and look the same and have nothing to do with each other at all. Like stalk, the stem of a plant, and stalk to follow sneakily. The words have different origins. Sometimes they even come from different languages. Their homonymity, which we are officially declaring to be a word, is a complete accident. And that is the question that piqued our interest when, recently, we happened to be inside a Catholic church, and in addition to being reminded that censors were a thing, we glimpsed a baptismal font and found ourselves wondering if fonts full of holy water and typeface fonts were polysemous homonyms or true homonyms. Because, boy, oh boy, do we know how to have fun in church. So let's start with the font. The one we saw in church. The kind we'd plonk down on some ancient ruined temple as furnishings. A font, in that sense, is a vessel that contains water. And usually it contains holy water used for holy rituals. Now, if you want to get technical in the religious sense, especially in Christian tradition... There are two main types of fonts, and there's a third type that's less common. The first is called an ablution font. It's usually a big stationary font at the entrance of a church, and its name comes from a Latin word which means to cleanse. And the primary purpose of such fonts was, traditionally, for churchgoers to cleanse themselves before entering the sacred space of the church proper. Various religious traditions have included such a ritual of cleansing before entering a holy space. And the tradition can involve a true cleaning, a washing of the hands, feet, or body, 
or a more symbolic gesture of cleansing. The second main type of font found in Christian churches is the baptismal font, which are used for, as you might guess, performing the rite of baptism. Now, baptism is a ritual of initiation in the Christian tradition, but its origins predate Christianity quite a bit. It is similar to several older Jewish traditions, including mikvah and tevilah, which are forms of ritual cleansing that are undertaken for various reasons, including prior to conversion to the Jewish faith, after circumcision, or after various acts considered unclean. It was the Messianic Jewish preacher John the Baptist who planted the seeds of baptism as initiation into the Christian church. But baptism isn't just a Christian or Jewish thing. The Islamic faith also includes ritual cleansings similar to those of Jewish tradition. And the Sikh faith uses a baptismal ritual for initiation as well. Now, baptismal fonts can be divided into two different types depending on the baptismal traditions. Aspersion fonts are smaller fonts that contain holy water, which can be sprinkled over a person or thing receiving a blessing. And immersion fonts are large enough that a person receiving a blessing can be partially or fully submerged in the water. We should also mention that baptisms in various faiths do not always require a font. John the Baptist routinely baptized the faithful by immersing them in a handy river, and the faithful of the Hindu tradition cleanse themselves of sin in the sacred Ganges River. The point is, though, that a font is just a vessel that contains holy water used for cleansing and blessing. And to understand why they are called fonts, you just have to know something about the origin of the font. See, the first fonts ever used were actually large fountains in the atria, the outer courtyards, of ancient temples, such as the Temple of Mount Athos along the Aegean Sea, or the Temple of Jabil in Syria. These fountains were used by visitors to clean their hands and feet in accordance with Hebrew or other religious traditions. And obviously the name font comes from the same root as the word fountain, and that comes from a Latin word which means source or spring. So it's easy to see why a font is a font in the temple furnishing sense. To understand why the other font is called a font, that is a set of letters of uniform size and design used for printing or typing, you have to know something about how printing was invented and how it wasn't. And that brings us around to Johann Gutenberg and how the stuff you think you know about the history of the printing press is wrong. Now, the history of printing is closely related to the history of writing, as you'd expect. And since the very first time someone in Sumer started making wedge-shaped marks in wet clay tablets in 3100 BCE and called it cuneiform, people have been searching for a better way to write things down, and to make copies of the things they'd written down. The Egyptians, for example, decided that wet clay was a pain, and they figured out how you could make papyrus from plant fibers, and you could write stuff on that with various pigments. The Chinese figured out a similar way to make a writing surface from the stalks of rice plants. And they also figured out how to collect the carbon residue from lamps, called lamp black, and make a nice, rich, dark ink. In Greece and Asia Minor, around 200 BCE, they didn't have much rice or papyrus around. But they did have plenty of sheep and goats, and they figured out how to make parchment from processed animal skin. And by the time of the Roman Empire, dyes, inks, parchment, and papyrus 
were all pretty readily available. But then, Rome kind of collapsed. We've mentioned that before. You really should know about it. And in Europe, literacy and writing went into a steep decline. See, without trade going across the Mediterranean and through the Middle East, papyrus was in pretty short supply. And it also didn't really handle the European climate well at all. It was pretty thin, delicate stuff. And parchment was too expensive. Goats and sheep were too valuable to slaughter just to make writing surfaces out of. And even when you had a dead goat or a sheep, parchment was hard to make and you didn't get much of it out of a single dead animal. But in Europe, in the Middle Ages, people had other stuff to worry about anyway. They couldn't sit around reading. Of course, in Europe, there was one place where literacy and writing stayed alive. And that was the church. Priests and monks were taught to read, primarily so they could read Holy Scripture. But as a result, they could read all sorts of other stuff as well. And write stuff. And copy stuff. And so it was that the medieval monasteries across Europe became the primary place to preserve knowledge. And then comes the part you learned in school, at least in Europe and America. Along came a goldsmith named Johann Gutenberg. He invented a mechanical device that could print out multiple copies of a book very quickly. And he ran off a bunch of copies of the Bible. And suddenly, everyone had books available and everyone learned how to read. And the Catholic priesthood stopped being the sole source of religious knowledge because anyone could read the Bible. And so the Protestant Reformation and the Hundred Years' War and everyone was literate and we have books. Right? Well, wrong. We're sorry to tell you that Johann Gutenberg didn't invent the printing press. Nor did he invent movable type printing, whatever that is. And the first book printed was not the Bible. But he did make printing a lot more efficient. And he kind of invented the font. Sort of. At the very least, it was his printing process that eventually helped the font earn its name. Obviously, before printing, there was only one way to make a copy of something that had been written down. Someone, a scribe from the Latin word for write, would have to copy the whole dang thing out, word for word. It was slow, painstaking, inefficient work. And it was even more difficult if you didn't have anything to write on. See, before we can even address printing in the Western world, we have to address the lack of paper. Recall, as we said, that writing surfaces were in short supply in Europe. And we discussed this also a long, long time ago when we talked about palimpsests. But then, someone in Samarkand, which is located in what we now call Uzbekistan, someone in Samarkand figured out a way to make a much more durable form of papyrus from wood or plant pulp. And that was called paper. That was around 500 CE, and the technique spread into Asia Minor and the Middle East. In 794, the world's first honest-to-goodness paper mill was established in Baghdad in modern Iraq. Understand how the establishment of a paper mill in Baghdad helped Europe with its writing surface shortage, you have to know who was running the show in 794 in Baghdad. And that was the Abbasid 
Caliphate. That was the third Islamic dynasty to rule the Middle East and Northern Africa. And beyond. See, the Islamic Caliphates were pretty militaristic and expansionist when you get right down to it. Heck, the Abbasid Caliphate came into power by essentially overthrowing the Umayyad Caliphate that came before it. That was just how they rolled. And speaking of rolled, they eventually rolled right across the Strait of Gibraltar and invaded Europe by way of Spain. Well, actually, it had been the Umayyads that had first invaded and occupied Spain. Look, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that in Zatvia, in Spain, around 1151 CE, the first paper mill was established in Europe. And man, paper was great. It was cheaper and easier to produce than dead goat skin, and it was more durable than imported papyrus. And soon, Europe was using it for all of its writing needs. By the 1200s, it was in Italy. By the 1300s, paper hit England. It was all the rage. But that didn't solve the problem of how time-consuming it was to make a copy of an existing book, what with all the copying by hand. No, that was fixed in the 1400s with this really brilliant idea for printing an entire page at once. An idea that came into Europe from the east, from the Korean Peninsula. An idea that the Koreans had adapted from the Chinese. An idea that had already been obsolete for almost four centuries in China. Here's the idea. Take a block of wood. Carve the stuff you want to appear on the page into the block of wood. Smear it with ink, then press it down really hard on a piece of paper. Wham! The stuff you carved is printed on the paper. Now, grab another piece of paper and do it again. And again. And again. That's called wood block printing, and it was great. Once you carved the page you wanted, you could easily make lots of copies. Well, not easily. It still took labor to press the block of wood against the paper. Even if you had a wooden frame with a screw you could turn to actually do the pressing, which was called a screw press. And of course, the biggest time waster was that you still had to carve each page into a block of wood. It was pretty labor intensive, which is what the Chinese thought after they invented it. See. The Chinese had developed woodblock printing sometime in the 800s, and they produced the oldest printed dated book known today in 868 CE. That was a Chinese translation of the Buddhist text, the Diamond Sutra. And the Chinese had even figured out some ways to improve the process and were able to mass produce some of their greatest classical texts. But there was still that whole hand carving thing. And that's what a Chinese inventor named Bai Sheng set out to solve. And he solved it during the Song Dynasty, sometime around 1045 CE. What Bai Sheng did was to take a bunch of small cubes of clay, each exactly the same size. And onto each one he carved a single Chinese character. Then he hardened the blocks in a fire. And then he'd take the blocks, arrange them to spell out a page, and loosely glue them to a metal sheet. He could then press that onto a piece of paper to print some text. 
Then he could separate the clay blocks into individual letters, rearrange them, and print another page. And that is called movable type. And it worked. It was a great idea. Instead of hand-carving each page, you just assembled the page from individual letters. There was just one little problem with this system. The Chinese written language had over 30,000 characters in common use at the time. That's because the Chinese language is based on ideographs rather than syllables. Each character represents a specific idea rather than a sound. Now, that's not to say his idea was a flop. Far from it. It still greatly sped up the printing process, and the idea spread into Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. If only it had spread to a place whose written language had a much simpler character set, though. Like Europe. Well, there's a lot of debate as to how the idea spread to Europe, or whether it actually did. There's no good evidence either way. And it's entirely possible that, just as different papers, inks, and writing techniques were invented independently in different parts of the world, the invention of movable type in Europe was concurrent and independent. It doesn't matter. The point is that in Mainz, Germany, a goldsmith named Johann Gutenberg did come up with the same idea. Engrave individual letters on individual blocks of metal, arrange them as needed to print a page, then rearrange them to print another. But whether Gutenberg invented it himself or not, he did make it remarkably efficient, especially the production of the letters themselves. See, Gutenberg was a goldsmith, remember? He was very good at making very fine, detailed molds, and he developed a number of techniques for quickly designing molds based on grids and matrices and then casting letters from them. That allowed him to produce large numbers of individual letter punches, which is what those things are called, that are needed to produce whole books. They also developed various mechanisms to speed the pressing process. And now you know why it's called pressing. And inks that were optimized to work with metals. And this all happened in the 1450s and beyond. And this is the part where literacy exploded in Europe and all over the world, right? No, not really. There was a surge in literacy in the 11th century as paper came into common use, and another in the 15th century to coincide with the printing press, and still another in the 17th century during the Reformation. But except for the Scandinavian countries, which were almost fully literate by the early 17th century, the rest of Europe and America hovered around a 30 to 40% literacy rate until the Industrial Revolution and the development of modern educational systems. But none of that answers the question, why is a typeface called a font? And we promised the answer had to do with the invention of movable type, or the reinvention of it in Europe anyway. And it does. See, font a typeface comes from the same Latin root as the word foundry and fondue. Yes, really, fondue. It's the Latin word fundere. 
which means to melt, pour, or mold. Which is how Gutenberg and his successors made their letter punches. So font and font are only the same by lucky happenstance, a quirk of linguistic fate, possibly like the invention of movable type printing on two different continents. Maybe. Sadly, we'll never know that one for sure. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 